Welcome to Telford Elim Sunday Podcast. We are so glad you could join us. To keep up to date with all that's going on, please go to telfordelim.com. I do hope you enjoy today's talk. I want to look this morning at how worship impacts our lives. Um, so if you've got your Bible, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to look at verses 26 through to 33. But worship is such a key component of our lives, and it's so important that we recognize that. It's really interesting. Eugene Peterson wrote in The Contemplative Pastor, he wrote this, and I think it's, it's so important to, to actually hear it. He talks about adolescence and how each generation experiences its own sin. And he talks about this in this book, and he talks about that in the years gone by, it used to be that when you got to 21, then you moved into adulthood. And then at that point, then you would start to become much wiser and all the things that should go with that. But he says this. I'll just read it from this little bit. Now the movement goes the other way. Lifestyles are generated at the youth level and pushed upward. Dress fashions, hairstyles, music, and morals that are adopted by youth are evangelically pushed in an adult world, which in turn seems eager to be converted. Youth culture began as a kind of fad and then grew into a movement. Today it is nearly fascist in its influence, forcing its perceptions and styles on everyone else, whether he likes it or not. This observation helps plot a pastoral understanding of people. There's a spread of adolescent experience upward through the generations. So instead of being over and done with when the 21st birthday is reached, it infects the upper generations as well. It is common to see adults in the 30s, 40s, and 50s who have not only adopted the external throppings of youth culture, but are actually experiencing the emotions, traumas, and difficulties typical of youth. They are experiencing life under its adolescent forms. The sins of the sons, it seems, are being visited upon the fathers. And it's so true that actually what begins in youth culture today is pushed upward. And it's evangelically pushed upward. And it's almost like a fascist regime. And so it attacks every moral that previous generations would have held because that's wrong. He says that the two things that it produces are this, the sense of inadequacy. So even amongst Christians, there's always this sense because you never feel that you mature or you ever get to that point where you can actually do it yourself. So inadequacy. And the other is a, an, a historical amnesia. And so instead of looking back to learn some good lessons and learn good truths, everyone's looking forward saying that tomorrow is going to be better and we can't carry forward the history that we had because the history is all wrong. And it's really interesting. He wrote this book many years ago. And when he wrote the book... I guess it wasn't just as pronounced as it was, but he certainly saw it. He was a prophet in his own right. So he wrote this in 1989. I wonder how many of us in 1989 were thinking that actually what's taking place today would take place, whereby youth culture, almost as the driver for morals, ethics throughout the land and throughout Western society. And if you, it's really interesting. You see, um, now people in their 60s and 70s trying to dress like they're teenagers and acting like they're teenagers. They go to Magaluf and anywhere else that they can, and they're still living out their teenage years because 
for them that is life and it's full. What a load of rubbish. I'm allowed to say that in church, aren't I? <laughs> Don't sound like an old footy-duddy, do I? The problem is with that is that it's leaving the biblical basis for all morality and ethics. And so we've ended up in this place of moral relativism. Wherever, whatever you feel is right, or wherever the youth culture feels right, everyone else has to obey. And it's, it's such... But the problem is there's no context to it. Because the context is always what I feel or what should be in my experience or my thoughts. And wonder is that how that we adopt worship then? Are we adopting worship in an adolescent sort of way? We want to feel the emotion, but we don't want to do the life change that worship brings. And worship does bring life change. It also affects how we use the spiritual gifts. It has a huge impact upon how we operate in the spiritual gifts. So I thought I would just throw that out at the start to, to get us thinking a little bit. Do we want to remain adolescents for the rest of our lives, teenagers for the rest of our lives? Or do we actually want to grow up in Christ? Now, of course, teenagers have incredible energy and they see the world in a very clear way. But that doesn't mean that they see it in the right way. And it's very much myopic because it comes from here inside and it looks out. Whereas Christians, what we're trying to do is get God's perspective on life and hear prophetic words and hear his perspective on what's taking place. And so instead of being myopic based around us, it's actually based upon him and his outlook. So it's a spirit-led outlook on life. So let me read these verses in 1 Corinthians 14. So I'm going to read from verses 26 to 33. Just to say that Paul's been dealing with in the verses before this, about order and about speaking in tongues, prophecy, and about the proper use of spiritual gifts in church. So he says, Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given. One will speak in tongues, and another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. No more than two or three should speak in tongues. They must speak one at a time, and someone must interpret what they say. But if no one is present, who can interpret? They must be silent in your church meeting and speak in tongues to God privately. Let two or three people prophesy, and let the others evaluate what is said. But if someone is prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. In this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak, one after the other, so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember the people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and take, and take turns. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. And we know that God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Really interesting that whenever William, William Tyndale was interpreting the Bible many years ago, centuries ago, an English interpreter of the Bible. Whenever he'd come to the church, he never interpreted in the New Testament this church. He would always interpret in the word congregation. And he used the word congregation. And when Paul's talking about here about us meeting the, in all the meetings of God's people, it's whenever all the congregation gathers together, whether that's in small groups, large groups, wherever it is. 
Now, of course, the, the reason why it's not in the New Testament, and so instead of we're talking about the congregation of God, we talk about the church of God, because Kirk, the, the German, the Kurtz, is the word for church, and that's the Latin that was imposed upon the English translations. But actually, congregation is a good understanding of what Paul's writing about. It's about a group of people who come together. It doesn't matter whether it's in a building like this, in a home group setting, or whatever the setting may be, but they come together. And when they come together, there's an expectation that the Spirit of God is going to work amongst them because they're the congregation of God. The difficulty when you use the word church all the time is you have this vision of something sacred, of something, a building, special orders, liturgy, all of that is part of it. But actually, when you think of the word congregation, you think of people like you and I coming together with all that we carry, coming into the, together to meet, but to wanting to engage with God and to worship. So Paul begins with this, brothers and sisters, let's summarize. What? So he's gathering up all that he said before in chapters 12, 13, and 14, up to this point. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will give some special revelation or prophesy. God has given one, has given. One will speak in tongues and another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must strengthen you. Because that's Paul's goal, is that the church will be strengthened, the congregation will be strengthened by what takes place. So whenever spiritual gifts and worship come together, what does worship do? Well, actually, worship takes you into the throne room. And when you're in the throne room before God, then suddenly everything is put into perspective. And you have an encounter with the anointing of God. And then when you walk out of the throne room, whenever you're in that place of worship, whenever you start to use spiritual gifts, you don't see them as your possession, but actually as they really are, given from God as a special gift that's given to us. They're spiritual after all. The reason why many of us end up in problems with spiritual gifts is because we're doing it from a place of human viewpoint. And as I already said, many of us are doing it from adolescent culture because we're saying, it's mine, it's mine. It's my special gift. But it's not our spiritual gift. Earlier on, he talks about how the Holy Spirit distributes to each one as he wills in 1 Corinthians 12. It's a gift of the Spirit. So therefore, worship enhances the spiritual gifts that we have. Worship's up the heart of it. In the New Testament, there's a number of words for worship. Proscunio is the one that's usually used, and this means kneeling in homage to God. So what you do is you come with an attitude of awe, but you kneel before God. So it's an attitude of the heart. Latrio is the one that actually means something more. It means that your worship leads to service. So this is a serving of God. So Joshua 24, 15, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That word is latrio. But it's also in Hebrews 12, 28. Serve God acceptably with reverence and and godly fear. So this idea of service, serving God, is worship. Liturgia is the other word. And that usually means priestly service of God. It's giving to God for the benefit of others. But there's something about it. It's about an offering that you give to God. Homologia is another word that's used sometimes, very rarely in the New Testament, for worship. 
And it's about different. It's about a confession of our faith. So our worship then says, I'm a follower of Jesus. So whenever you come to that point, you're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. My colors are nailed to the mast of Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus. But there's a word that's used quite a bit in New Testament, and it's sebomai. And it's an interesting word because it's always in the middle voice. So you may say, well, what does that matter? Well, in the active voice, there's three tenses in Greek verbs. In the active voice, it says, I act. I am in control of what I do. And then there's the passive. Someone acts upon me. Another is in control. So, but then there's a third one, and that's the middle voice. I actively take part in the results another initiates. So it's slightly different. So in an active voice is, I counsel my friend. In the passive voice, I am counseled by my friend. It's done to me. But in the middle voice, I take counsel. Me and somebody else meet together, and we just liberate stuff together. It's interesting that Sibamai is always in that middle voice. Middle voice is a really amazing um, concept. Because my action is inspired by the initiation of another. But I'm a willing participant. I am actually doing something. So this type of worship is a type of worship where the Holy Spirit inspires us. We worship God as a result. And God receives the glory. But it's something. So it's not God in control and me just responding to God. It's not... It's not me in control trying to make myself worship. This means that actually the Holy Spirit is the inspirer of our worship. But he lets us worship freely in that. We have an ability then to worship freely and to let ourselves express how we worship. It's an interesting, isn't it? Interesting, a lot of the time prayer in the, in the Bible is middle voice. So prayer is middle voice. So that is this idea that instead of me trying to manip control and manipulate God through my prayer, or if you're in the passive, being like a Hindu whereby I, I just have no control of anything, I just pray and then I hope it all works out okay. Prayer is in the middle voice where the Spirit inspires, I pray and God responds. It's lovely, isn't it? He's all missed out by not doing Greek at school. But it does make a difference. It helps us to understand when you put that middle voice into our worship. So worship does not begin in me. It is not done for me without me joining in. Worship originates in the Spirit of God. It is directed back towards Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet I benefit from the worship. I am built up. I am encouraged. I am strengthened by the worship that I give. Not good. So you're getting strengthened by what you do today. William Temple was a, um, a Bible commentator, a bishop, all sorts of things, but he says this. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of our conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of our imaginations by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of our will to his purpose. And all this is gathered up in adoration and worship. 
the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. So he says this. He says, Worship, then, is the submission of all our nature to God. So in our lives, there's that idea that Jesus called us to a place of repentance. And so we repent. And repentance is you're turning with, you're walking away from Jesus, we are back to God. You repent, which turns you right around 180 degrees, and now you're facing Jesus. The whole idea then is that that's where many of us stay. But worship closes the distance, and we come right up close to Jesus. Instead of holding our distance back, we get up close and personal with Jesus. And then there's three things happen, which I've shared a few times this week in different settings, but there are three things that happen. The first one is that we encounter his lordship. So we come onto a place of submission, and submission brings us to our knees. And so down we get, Lord, you're so much bigger and more awesome than I could imagine. And so we come to a place of humility and recognize that all that we are comes from him, and everything that we can be flows from him. And everything we ever hope to be is already in Christ, because he's the center. So the first part is we encounter his lordship. Hopefully, hopefully. If we bypass this, we're always in trouble because we become self-willed. This breaks self-will and turns us into people who want to please God. So you encounter the Lordship of Christ. The second one is then you come into, into the place where you come under the kingly authority of Christ. And the kingship of Christ is where he shares his authority with us. And so you come first to that plank on your knees, the surrender bit, and then you hear the, who shall go for us? And here we come to this place of surrender and we say, Lord, I'll go. And he says, okay, I endow thee with my kingly authority. So we come under the kingship. So we go out and start to be good witnesses and live out the Christian faith. And so as we do that, then we start to step out with his authority. Not because I think I should, but because of his kingly authority. Lordship, his kingship. And then the third thing is the remarkable thing that he does. And that's at the heart of worship. He shares his glory with us. And so then, after that point, then he shares his glory. It's lordship first, submission, kingship, come under his authority, have the power of the Spirit of working your life to go and to do. And the third thing then is the glory. And when he shares his glory then, you walk into a room and people say, look at that. Wow, something different about you. What is that? And that is he's sharing his glory with you. And so you carry the presence of God. There's a shining about your life. You won't know that. But other people will know it when you walk into the room. Whenever you turn up in a situation, other people will say, it's okay, because there's p suddenly peace arrives and joy arrives where there's only pain and torture. When you turn up, everyone's in confusion and suddenly you just bring clarity because he's shared his glory with you. You turn up and everyone else is caught up in everything else and suddenly everyone gets properly sorted out and start to focus on Jesus because he's at the heart of your life. After all, you're in complete surrender to his lordship. You're working under the kingly authority and he's sharing his glory with you. Wouldn't that be amazing? Lordship, kingship, and then the glory he shares with us. And that's at the heart of worship. But many repent. So many repent to turn towards Christ and to stay there because they feel inadequate. That youth culture is still at work within them. And also, they don't know the historical reality that many Christians actually were able to close the, 
the distance and actually do amazing things for God. But to feel inadequate. Can I say to you today, in order to move right in these gifts, you need to close the distance. You need to be under the lordship of Christ. You need to have the kingly authority, the fullness of the spirit, letting his word fill your lives. And then he will share his glory with you. You can't determine when he will do it, but it will start to happen. And when he does that, that's a lovely place to be, when he's sharing his glory. Because after all, you can't make it happen. But you start to turn up and things start to happen in spite of you. They just start to happen because he shared his glory with you. Now, the danger is, of course, at that point, I better put that in as a proviso, the danger is that you start to take the glory and say, wow, it's all me. If you touch the glory, he cuts your hand off. If you, th if you think the glory is yours, he puts you right back down to that place because he will not share his glory. He won't let anyone else receive it. It's his glory. But he shares it with us so that we're under the covering of it. It's almost like the Shekinah. The very presence of God covers our lives. Wherever we walk, his presence follows us and covers our lives. A reverence for God comes. The service of God comes. Giving to God becomes the very highest and noblest thing. So let me pick up just a couple of things in 1 Corinthians 14. In verse 26, he lists five things that are at the heart of what takes place whenever worship is happening. Singing, teaching, prophecy, tongues, interpretation. So those are the five things that he particularly highlights in verse 26 of chapter 14. Singing, teaching, prophecy, tongues, interpretation. And if a congregation is functioning right in worship, those are the five things that will manifest. That doesn't mean that healing won't, or miracles won't, or other things won't, but those are the five primary things that will be in nearly every worship service, or we should expect in every worship service. Singing, teaching, prophecy, tongues, interpretation. When a church is functioning properly, those things will be moving. In verse 27, he sets a limit on the message in tongues. It's limited to a few with an interpretation after each one. Why? Because he says that tongues have got the propensity to scare the unbeliever. And Paul's developing church, hard to believe, but for the unchurched. He's really concerned about the unchurched coming in. Because he wants to reach out. He's an evangelist at heart. He's an apostle at heart. He wants to reach the lost. So he's not so much worried about how nice we feel. He's much more worried about... How, what the impact's going to be on the unbeliever. And then in verse 28, the, the presence of a recognized interpreter is important. If no one is there who's a recognized interpreter, then no message in tongues. So that shows that there's a certain amount of control and order in how you do it. It's not something like the ecstatics in the ancient world did. They just couldn't help themselves. They just blurted it out. But that's not us. We're under the anointing of the Spirit, but the Spirit doesn't take over our will and our voice box. We have a part to play in this. It's always in partnership with us. But if there's no recognized interpreter, then no message in tongues. And Paul, remember, Paul's writing to a house church culture. 
So he was expecting this to happen in every single home that was taking place. Every home, whether it's a life group, we would call it, or a connect group, whatever you want to call them. But it was happening in every single one of them. So in our life groups, our connect groups, and every time that we gather as a small group in prayer meetings, and no matter what it is, Paul was expecting this sort of stuff. Those five things to be operating. Singing, teaching, prophecy, tongues, interpretation. And yet we limit it to Sunday morning and say, that's the culmination of everything. But there's so much more than that. Imagine if our life groups are full of that, and our connect groups, and our prayer meetings, and Sunday mornings, and Sunday evenings, and every time we come together is full of these five things. Singing, teaching, prophecy, tongues, interpretation. Wouldn't that be just a different sort of church? In verse 29, he also limits the prophesying. Two or three prophecy, and by doing so, they teach God's way and encourage the congregation, verses 29 to 31. Because that's really important for him. Let two or three people prophesy and let the others evaluate what is said. Wow. Do you ever come to church to be evaluated? And yet that's what he says about the prophetic gifts. So if somebody gets up and gives this amazing prophecy, the prophets who are there should go, is that really of God or is that of them? How much of that is of God? Is that 80% them, 20% God? Is that 100% God or no percent of them? What does actually it mean? What is it actually saying? This is where stuff should be happening. So that's why we need to be spiritually mature. And we need prof the prophetic ministries working. Because for Paul, the prophetic in church was the highest and most noble. But also in that time, prophecy was also the preaching of God's word. So whenever they talk about prophecy a lot, it's also about sharing a message or the word of God. Because that was bringing or expounding God's word. We have prophecy and think of just foretelling future events. But actually for them... It was also forthtelling God's word. It was breaking down God's word and saying, God's word says this. This is how you can apply it to your lives. This is what it means for you today. So the prophecy was more than just that. This is prophecy in a biblical setting. So you should be all evaluating how well is he doing. Is, he actually, is it all him? How much of it is of him? Honestly, it's true. Anytime you go to here, no matter how charismatic or great the preacher, you should be sitting there and thinking, how much of that is him? How much is that of God? What is God really saying in this? Is he talking about a hot air? Or is he a real anointing upon his life? Or her life? No matter whether he or she. doesn't matter. Verse 32 and 33. The, prof the gift of prophecy is subject to the experience and discretion of the one with the gift. It's a gift of order. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. This idea of the congregation together. So, what can we say? Worship flows to the Trinity. We are inspired to give it by the Spirit of God. It includes us, but it also leads us to holy fear and reverence, to divine service, to the service of God. It also includes the giving of our very best to God and to his service as part of our worship. Spiritual gifts 
and the building up of the congregation. It's meant to bring us to that point. Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Deuteronomy 26, 10. And now, O Lord, I have brought you the first portion of my harvest you have given me from the ground. Then place the produce before the Lord your God and bow to the ground in worship before him. May God help us to bring the very best of our lives, set it before him, to bow down and say, Lord, you have given it. I'm a steward of it, and I'm giving it back to you. Our worship, our finances, but also our spiritual gifts. Thank you for listening to Telford Elim's Sunday podcast. To keep up to date, go to telfordelim.com or find us on social media.